Good morning, Christ Central. Uh, I'm Harold, one of the pastors here. I count it a privilege, and I am glad to be here with you this day. Uh, last week, we started a series on loving the local church. We had a fantastic guest speaker come and charge us from the book of Ephesians to love the church the way that Jesus does. And so we're going to continue for the next four to five weeks on loving different elements of what God offers through his local church. So this morning, if you have your Bibles, let's turn to the book of James, okay, chapter 1, verses 19 to 27. Okay, we're going to look at the Word of God, how to listen and do the Word of God. James chapter 1, verses 19 to 27, let's give our attention to this. I'm happy to read it for us, starting at verse 19. Know this, my beloved brothers... Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror, for he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless." Religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father, is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. This is God's word for us this morning. So pastors who've been called for years and years and years to study, to prep, to stress, trial and error and joy and depression to be able to deliver and teach God's word. That's part of our calling and there is lots of highs and lows to that. It is a fact that pastors have to prep like this for years and years and years, but I realize, aside from this passage, there's very little preparation for you. There's very little preparations or schools or training for how to listen to the word of God, how to receive the word of God, how to really get maximum value and impact. So that's the lesson for us today. Now, this James was actually the brother of Jesus. The brother of Jesus grew up in the household from diapers all the way up and then saw his brother get crucified to a cross. And I don't know how many people are here where your brother is so impressive or your brother had so much integrity that one day you came to fall down on your knees and worship your brother as God. I don't know how often that happens. It probably never happens, but this happened. James, the very brother of Jesus, came to worship Jesus as God and basically follow him for the rest of his life. Now, one of the main questions James answers in this book, short little book, is that he's a very practical man. He wants to see concrete, visible results. And so the question he is answering is this. If you've really had an encounter with the living God, if you really know God by putting your faith in Jesus' son, 
What does that life look like? The question he is unpacking throughout this little book is, if you put saving faith in Jesus, does he just escape and rescue you and take you to heaven? Or does it have any practical effects or changes now? Does it make a difference here and now? And one of the first foundational things that James unpacks here is if you've had an encounter with God, if you have a new and living relationship with God, first and foremost, you're going to have a new and living relationship with his word. What difference does it make? The way you treat and consider and approach the scriptures, the holy scriptures. And so here I've just got three things to organize us in this passage. It's gonna be marked by one new approach. There is gonna be two accomplishments that the word of God brings, and then we're just gonna close with two apps, two applications. A new and living relationship with God always results in a new and living relationship with his word, his scriptures. One new approach, two accomplishments, and two apps. The approach, the approach. 2017 happens to be the 500-year anniversary of what we call an historic event called the Reformation. It was led by a man by the name of Martin Luther, and foundational to the Reformation was this rediscovery of a principle in Latin. It was called sola scriptura. That literally means by scripture alone. Martin Luther, 500 years ago, and all of his followers, and our church falls into that heritage, that legacy, into the same theology, they rediscovered that the word of God is solely and supremely authoritative above all else. Martin Luther lived in a day and age where there were two sources of authority. There was the word of God and scriptures, but plus the Pope, plus human teaching, plus tradition, plus the church, plus what godly people told you. Martin Luther rediscovered, no, there's a sole and supreme authority, sola scriptura, by scripture alone. And thus set apart one of the greatest movements, religiously speaking, of which so many churches now belong. In fact, the only religious body that is still growing today in the US of A are Protestants. It is the only group that is growing more than losing its people. Every other stat, check it out, the only religious body that gains more people than losing are Protestants. And Protestants are people who protested. We actually believe that there is only one single supreme authority. For instance, at the Council of Trent in 1546, this is a Catholic teaching, which is still binding today, by the way, they taught, quote, that unwritten apostolic tradition is still authoritative. So what this means is this. The unwritten apostolic tradition, which by the way, no one knows what that means. It's still kind of secret. It changes, it evolves. Nobody can really define what that means. For Catholics, they have a dual source of authority. There are two sources of authority. Tradition, apostles, pope, and scripture. But they're on equal footing. Protestants come along and say, apostolic teaching, good. Pope, good. Tradition, good. Customs, good. Learned, educated, godly people unpacking the scriptures to you, all good. But there's only one sole supreme authority above it all that checks it all. It's the scripture, scripture alone. 
And so now what James is teaching, really if you're Catholic or Protestant, but all the more so for Protestants today, is when you approach the scriptures, it is actually the very word of God. How then should you approach it? Here's what he said. Put away anger, put away filth, and put away rampant wickedness. There's all kinds of translations to these words, but let me summarize. Anger, filth, rampant wickedness, all forms, all manifestations of sin. Instead, to better listen to and do the holy words of God, you ought to receive with meekness a teachable, humble posture that you are coming under supreme and sole authority. Put away, but come with meekness. I mean, this is what I do all the time. If I know I have a special occasion, we made a reservation at this fancy like Michelin-starred restaurant or steak restaurant or sushi, whatever you like. Do you know what I do for that day? Just in preparation for that 8 p.m. reservation, I prepare myself. I don't eat. I may eat a side salad. I may just chew some nuts. I drink a lot. But I want my physical body to be prepared because I just cannot wait to eat as much as I can and to enjoy the food that night. Spiritually speaking, it works the same way. Sunday after Sunday, you hear the preaching of the Word of God. You read the Word of God. You sing the Word of God. You pray the Word of God. But if your soul is filled with junk, you see, you can't, you continue to digest and just put into your soul filth, lust, wickedness, anger, unforgiveness, unresolved sin, and you come into a place where your soul is just toxic, it's polluted, you've eaten too much junk food, you will not be able, I'm afraid to tell you, to eat and enjoy the word of God. James instructs, he's being very practical, You will not be able to read and enjoy the word of God. You will not be able to worship or pray unless you put away all forms of sin. Confess them. God will forgive you. And instead, come with a position of meekness. Meekness. There are a couple outstanding reasons why I count it the greatest privilege to be called a Christian today. One would be, I actually believe Jesus rose again from death Physically, historically, literally. He died under the Roman Empire by historical records. The tomb was empty and he rose again. Therefore, if he did that, then my life should belong to him. If a man got up from death, I'm going to take seriously everything he ever said and taught, like he is God. And he's going to come back to judge the world. And I want to listen and do everything he told me. But there's a second reason why I still remain and count it a joy to be a Christian today. This book. This book. The Bible. It's an anthology. It's a collection of writings of holy scriptures. This book, my friend, talks to me like no other book. No other book has come close to get me better than this book. And you can be endlessly academic. I mean, there are colleges that teach the Bible as English literature. You can say it's the best wisdom writings ever written. It's the bestseller of all time. Endless PhDs and dissertations. You could spend lifetime after lifetime getting very academic about this book. But I'll tell you, on top of that, 
if and when I read the Holy Scriptures, do you know what happens with me often? I actually sense an intelligent person, a sovereign power, God himself come and move and talk to me and touch my heart and reach me. And he shows me things I hadn't seen. He sharpens and exposes things that I did not realize on my own. This is why we need the word of God. He strengthens and encourages me like no other counsel, even of a friend or a mom. This book, I realize, is the book that I've always been craving for, always been looking for. It actually describes better to me who I am and what the world is like. And in and through the pages, an actual person by the power of his spirit comes and talks to me. I mean, one of the greatest encouragements is friends here and at Artesian, I'd rather preach nowhere else than at Christ Central. They'll come up, and if they're brave enough and I have time, they'll say, you know, Pastor, I cannot believe today. Did you write that sermon just for me? Like, did you read my diary yesterday? Did you have a spy camera in my bedroom? How was it that you spoke in such a way that I felt like I was the only person in that room and that word of God was meant directly for me? Thank you for that compliment. But do you know 90% of the time what I'm thinking? I have no clue. I wasn't talking about you. It was just the word of God speaking to you. I don't know what's going on with most of you. But because this is a living power, a person who comes and moves, God brings a new and living relationship with him and his word. Therefore, approach it by putting away all filthiness, all junk, all toxin, but come with meekness to receive the implanted word. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 1, like newborns who cry out for their mother's milk, Every genuine born-again child of God will have a natural hunger and appetite, craving and crying out for this book. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, it states, the word of God is like a double-edged sword. It's like a surgical tool. It has more insight, more value, more benefit, more exposure and healing medication than any other tool in the world. Do you believe that? Do you actually have a hunger for that? James is instructing us, put away all anger, all filthiness, all rampant wickedness, get ready to eat, enjoy, with meekness receive the implanted word. Now, there are a bunch of people still today, and I sympathize with you, who say, you know, reading the Bible is just so difficult. It's still so dry and boring. It's like a puzzle. Can I actually let you in on a little secret? I'm a, I'm a pastor. I'm going to tell you this. This is my first suggestion. I really mean it. You know what you should do? The Bible is still so, so difficult to read. Read it superficially. Really. Read it on the surface. Forget all the dates. Forget all the geography. Forget all the details. You don't have to know all the names. Just read it fast. Read it generally and get the big picture. Just go for the main storyline. Get the main point. Read it all the way through. Do it more than once. Speed read it and get other books to help you. And I assure you, just like any other puzzle, and especially this book, because it's from God, it's meant to become clear. If you read it regularly, if you read it repetitiously, if you read it intelligently, just for the surface, read it all the way through and it'll become clear. 
Just start there. You got to start somewhere. But for many other people, well, you know, pastor, my problem with the scriptures is not that it's hard to understand. The problem is I do understand it and it's so dang offensive. My issue with this as the word of God is how could it be the word of God when there are so many unbelievably offensive things? Can I consider something with you this morning? What a common and honest objection that is. How much I appreciate people who are interested in getting to know Christianity through his word and you say something like, but it's so offensive. Well, let's play with that, let's consider it. Why do you find it offensive? What parts do you find offensive? I'm sure you find some parts of the Bible to be beautiful, wonderful, moving, nice. But then, of course, there's all these other parts that you find terribly offensive. But why would that be? Why do you find certain parts so wonderful and other parts so awful? Is it because we're so savvy, we're so advanced, we're so literate? Is it because we're so technologically progressed? Is it because we have now arrived in 2017, a universal and perfect perspective? We don't have any more biases. We have no more blind spots. Or could it be that right now in your seat, the way you interpret and read the scriptures is so much dependent upon your cultural and social location? You know, social scientists tell us, do you know how everyone arrives at truth, quote unquote truth? It's not by brute rationale. It's not just by pure brain power. Everyone arrives at their truth through a combination of empathy, experience, community, and social conditioning. No one arrives at truth just by pure rationale, but by your so society and culture. Let me give us a couple examples. You ever read the, uh, watch this movie, 21 Jump Street? 21 Jump, pretty funny. I, I grew up on that in the 80s. I laughed so loud that according to 21 Jump Street now, like the popular big man on campus when I grew up in 80s is like the worst guy on campus. Everything's flipped on its head. You see, in the 80s, among guys like athletic, like kind of wannabe athletic guys like myself, it was unacceptable. It was somewhat offensive for a guy to be a wuss. We use other colorful language for that. But don't be a wuss. Don't be a wuss. Now, just 20, 30 years later, it's don't be a bully. Don't be a bully. I mean, teachers are training and teaching people on this. You see, so just 20, 30 years ago, according to that cultural social location, it was unacceptable. It was offensive to be a wuss. Now it's unacceptable and offensive to be a bully. In 800 AD, an Anglo-Saxon warrior, according to Making Sense of God by Dr. Tim Keller, could have two raging desires. One is I'm aggressive, I'm violent. Someone bucks me, I'm gonna kill him. In his day and age, that was acceptable. The other was that he had same-sex attraction. A manly Anglo-Saxon warrior in 800 AD would never dare confess and carry out that he might be gay. So in his day and age, he would suppress all the same-sex attractions, but he could carry out his violent aggression. Now you have a young lad walking down the streets of Manhattan, New York today, who has the same two desires. Could be angry, could be vengeful, could be violent. But that's unacceptable. But if you have same-sex attraction, 
That's cool. Let's carry that out. What I'm trying to suggest to you is this. The word of God, if it's not a product of anyone's culture, if it's not a product of human time, it's not a product of education, why then would you not suppose it's going to offend you at some point every time? The word of God is going to offend every culture in a different way. The word of God is going to cut you in every different age. You see, the word of God is never going to agree with you or else it really wouldn't be the word of God. Take, for instance, the problem of evil. Why is there so much suffering and trauma? Why is there so much sex trafficking? Why does ISIS exist? How can racism be still this bad? Do you know that virtually no ancient philosopher or thinker took the problem of evil and then logically concluded, well, that must mean there must be no God. Virtually no one concluded that. But nowadays, you take the problem of evil and suffering, and what would most people conclude now? I should be an atheist. I should be an agnostic. My friend, we belong to a cultural and social location that biases us, that conditions us, that actually drives you to certain truths. But the truth above all truth, the one word in counsel that will cut across all demographics, all spectrums, all parties, all schools of thought, all schools of thought, every culture is none other than the scriptures as the word of God. Approach it as such. That's why we approach it as such, with meekness. You know, there's two accomplishments, two accomplishments that only the word of God can bring. Verse 21, we read, receive the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Well, this is, I'm gonna go quick here. This is a supernatural accomplishment. The world could never do this to you. Did you know that the word of God, every time it's opened and understood, could actually save you? Save you from what? Save you from self-delusion, save you from self-righteousness, save you from self-misery, save you from self-depression, save you from self-destruction, save you from hell in eternity and hell on earth. The word of God, like an organism, an implanted word of power can save you by pointing you to a substitute savior, Christ Jesus. But there's a second accomplishment that I'd like to spend a little more time on. The word of God not only saves you, which the world could never do, the word of God can shape you. Shape you, let me put it this way, to be so different from the world that you can turn around and better serve the world. Only the word of God has the power to shape you to be so distinct and separate and different from the world that you can turn around and then heal and better serve the world. Look at this one verse. It's majestic. A lot of commentators say, this is the thesis. It's the key verse to the whole book, which, by the way, as a book, is a commentary on the Sermon on the Mount. But the key verse is verse 27. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. The word of God can shape you to be so different from this world. Notice how it puts two things, pulls two things together. First it says, visit orphans and widows, visit orphans and widows. The prophets preach this repeatedly with passion. The Old Testament charges us, do not mistreat immigrants and foreigners or aliens for you are a foreigner. Be very careful as Christians. 
The Old Testament is filled with charges of social conscience and compassion, equality and justice. Here it is. Pure and undefiled Christian life really is about social compassion and action. But he doesn't stop there, does he? Then he goes on and says, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Now he's talking about what? Personal purity. Inner morality. Maybe family values. Conservative. Sexual self-control. Here in the word of God, he combines sexual self-control and social compassion. Here by the word of God, Christian people are to have both personal purity and social responsibility. I need I spell this out for you. Aren't there entire right now competing schools of thought and cultures and political parties that only do one over the other? Isn't the world basically about you do one to the exclusion of the other, but when you can to the word of God, it pulls them together. And this is how you and I know, can better know. This is how you and I can better test Christ central of what kind of people are we really becoming? Are we becoming more shaped by the word of God than this world? Are we bringing things together that otherwise are always polarized and separated? Are we sexually self-controlled, personally pure, keeping unstained, as well as have new compassion and care and actions for people otherwise you normally didn't care about? The word of God, two accomplishments, supernaturally saves you, but also the word of God supernaturally shapes you. Shapes you. Let me just close with two apps, two applications. We're going to close with this. Well, how? Practically again, James, you're practical. All right, pastor, you better be practical today. How does this, the word of God, actually practically move into your life to save and shape you? How? How? Look at this verse. Here's the answer. Verse 23. Verse 23. He wrote... For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Two apps, two applications. First, he says, you've got to look intently, intently. Look intently into the perfect law. Look intently into that mirror. Persevere. Keep doing it day after day after day, week after week. Look intently. Are you intent? Are you intent? This is the same Greek word that's used for Peter on Easter Sunday morning. When he went to the empty tomb and the body of Jesus is gone. The very man he betrayed three times. The one humanly speaking with all fear, full of fears and doubts. You could not believe that this could be the Messiah because he died. But on Easter Sunday morning, after the women went there first, Peter showed up. Now I want you to think about, do you think he went to the tomb and was he casual? Did he just take one little look, just walked away? Oh yeah, he's not there. I don't even think we can imagine how many times we can count, how many times he checked. He must have gone into the tomb, checked every little crevice. He must have maybe drugged to the ground. Are you buried? Where did you go? He was observing. He was investigating. He was analyzing. His brain was at full functioning power. He was careful. 
He looked at it intently. Now, this is what James is saying you should do with the scriptures. Intently. You know, how much time do you spend on it? How regular are you with it? How disciplined are you about it? How systematic? How thoughtful? How intentional are you? Do you ever really read the word of God when we're going through the gospel of John, like before it's preached? Or ever read it again after it's preached? Do you ever try to turn it around in different angles and look to try to discern it and apply it for yourself? Because by the way, the most powerful movement is when the Holy Spirit speaks to you, not when someone just speaks to you. In our household, there's a new little tradition. It's called family Bible quiz time at the end of the month. Start off as a dread. We're reading through the historical books. This last month was 2 Kings. And one of my daughters, she's so cute and endearing, she... She took notes. She took a lot of notes. Because at the quiz, I'm not so spiritual. I combined a spiritual endeavor to read the Bible with a straight up unspiritual reward. I just give them stone cold cash. <laughs> whoever, wins the ca- whoever wins this quiz, you just get cash. Working so far, pray for our family. And the quiz we just took a couple days ago, man, one of my daughters had a notebook full of notes from 2 Kings. And I'll ask, okay, from chapter 12, who was so-and-so who was the king then? And you know, poor little girl. She'd taken so many notes, she got stressed. She couldn't find within all of her notes where that part was. (laughs) Daddy, daddy, slow down. I'm not at chapter 12 yet. Let me look for chapter 12. But the other daughter, she's so book smart. I know what it is. She just rattled off the answer. But you see, whatever helps you, whatever helps you to be intent. If you need to write down notes, write down notes. If you need to be walking to better understand the scriptures, be walking. If you need to listen to it, listen to it. If you need to be dancing, go ahead, dance. Whatever works, because you know what matters most for you, my friend? is to look intently into the laws of God and have it move and shape you. How intent are you? But here's the second app and we close. The second application. You know, James says, it's a perfect law. James says, the more intent you look into the scriptures, the better you're gonna see yourself. And out of everybody in this room, I dare challenge to go out of this room just for the next week and give it everything you got to actually do it. James says, don't just hear. Don't just listen. Don't just read. Don't just study. Don't just have a discussion on it. Do not just hear the word. Do it. Do it. All right, go ahead and do it. And I'll tell you, I guarantee you what's going to happen. Anyone who dares to look intently into the perfect law and actually do everything you can this week to actually do it, you're gonna find it's the hardest thing you've ever done. You are gonna look into the mirror and you're gonna see, I cannot believe how far I fell short. Jesus taught in such a way where he said, don't just do it, you better have the right thoughts and motives to it too. Again, this is a commentary in the Sermon on the Mount. So here's a second application. My friend, those who've really looked 
perf- looked intently into the perfect law, those who have really tried to obey and do the law of God, you're going to see that you fall so short, so you're going to have to really look hard for a savior. I don't know any way else around it. It's ironic. The people who have tried their hardest and darnest to live like a Christian actually might have to become a Christian. Because when you try so hard to do it, you're going to recognize, do you realize there's only one person who really did it? Have you ever recognized that there's only one person who looked intently to all the law, the perfect law, and perfectly fulfilled it? His name is Jesus Christ. And in the courts of heaven, in Hebrews chapter 10, he still sings, I delight to do thy will, O Lord. Thy law is in my heart. Jesus was the only person who looked intently, obeyed, fulfilled, and that's why he came to save those who don't. Jesus is the only person who fulfills what James says. And this is why Jesus obeyed the perfect law of God in two different ways. One, we call it active obedience. He obeyed the law of God actively. That means he actually obeyed, delighted in God's law all the days of his life. He lived the perfect life that we should have lived. But then we call his Second way of obeying the law of God, a passive obedience. Actively, he lived the way we should have lived, but then he died a death that he did not deserve. Active obedience, he obeyed and fulfilled the perfect law. Passive obedience, he died the penalty of all those who broke the law by giving his life up on a cross. And so Jesus Christ, actively and passively, is the only one who fulfills all the law of God. And my friend, why did he fulfill it? And why did he die a death he did not deserve? He did it to save you. He did it to shape you. He did it so that you can now have a whole new relationship with his law, with his word. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, announces the gospel in this way. For God made Jesus, him who knew no sin, to be sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God. Let me just translate that. God made him who had never broken the law, perfectly obeyed the law, to die the penalty of lawbreakers, so that lawbreakers can become the righteousness of God. Lawbreakers can reap the rewards that the lawkeeper deserves. Close with the true story back to Martin Luther. 500 years ago, his dad wanted to become a lawyer. He ran away, became a Catholic priest, went into the one of the most strict Augustinian, he became a strict Augustinian monk. And the records have us that he was so sensitive to his sin, which is the right track. He was so sensitive about how wicked and filthy he is before an infinitely perfect holy God, he would confess hours and hours of his sinfulness every morning as a monk. Do you know that included farting? He confessed the sin of flatulence. And he came across these two verses in Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, that just so troubled him, because he just couldn't figure it out. Verses 16 and 17 reads, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And here's what Martin Luther was so troubled by. He says, for the life of me, I cannot put the word gospel, which means good news, in the same sentence with righteousness. 
Again, he's a strict religious monk. How can you speak of the righteousness of God as something that goes hand in hand with good news, gospel? And here is the revelation that he had. And his heart was reborn, he was riveted, and the reformation was unleashed. Here's what he came to discover. You know, the righteousness of God, if it's something that I have to produce, if the righteousness of God is something I have to present, it could never be good news. It's a condemnation. It's a burden. Ah, but Apostle Paul in these verses must be saying something else. It could only be good news if the righteousness of God is not something I present or produce, but maybe it's something God provides. Maybe righteousness is something God gives. Through the life, through the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And here's what's going to change. Here's what's going to change. You know your heart that used to look at the law and obey it out of duty? Out of fear of going to hell? Out of dread of punishment? Is actually going to have delight and joy. Because the one who wrote these laws died for you. The one who wrote these laws gave himself for you. You're going to obey because of love. It's not going to be a terror. It's not going to be a trauma. It actually might be a tonic. It's not going to be mean. It's going to be a medicine. It's going to shrink your tumors. It's not going to give you greater stress. It's going to be a light unto your feet, not darkness. It's going to be a balm for every gaping wound. It's going to dry your tears. The word of God, the law of God, the perfect law of God, if kept by Jesus changes our hearts so that now we can say with Jesus, I want to, I delight to do thy will. You know, the test of every test that you are a child of God this day is you love being told what to do. The test underneath every test today is that you actually love being told what to do by someone who lived and died for you. Let's pray.